Prestige listeners, it's Derek here with you as always with my co-host Danny Bessner. Uh, we're joined uh, to our great delight once again by Rashid Khalidi, Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. Uh, those of you who haven't listened to Professor Khalidi's first appearance on this show, please do that because we're going to be continuing pretty much from where we left off, discussing his book, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017. Uh, also, if you haven't bought the book yet, please do that. We've uh, had links in the show description and we'll have one in the description to this show. Professor Khalidi, thank you very much again for joining us. Thanks again for having me. So last time we talked a little about your background and your interest in writing the book. We talked a little bit about the sort of pre-World War I environment in Palestine, in Ottoman Palestine, the early origins of Zionism and the you know some of the interchange uh, that went on there. I thought maybe we could start this interview, just with a general sort of overview of your book, you have it divided mm-hmm. into six chapters marking six key moments or periods uh, in the development of the Israel-Palestine conflict. I think they'll be obvious to people who, who know the history of that conflict, but I, for those who you know are maybe not quite as familiar, Take us through those six and why you chose them, and were there any considerations to adding additional periods to, to your list? Yeah, I, I, I chose these six not entirely arbitrarily. The earlier ones are the obvious ones. As you get closer to the present, it might be possible to add others or to describe things somewhat differently. I chose to describe these episodes as declarations of war on the Palestinians, and I did that for two reasons. Firstly, because I think what's important in these cases is the international sanction and support that is being given to what is being done to the Palestinians. Sometimes it's being done by the British army. Sometimes it's being done by the Israelis. Sometimes it's being done by Arab states, uh, Jordan, Syria. So I didn't just talk about the wars. I talked about what it was that gave sanction to, gave authorization to, endorsed and supported these wars on the Palestinians. The first is obviously the Balfour Declaration and the British Mandate for Palestine. Seen from one perspective, this is a wonderful thing, Jewish national home, and so on and so forth. From the perspective of the Palestinians, as I try and show, this was Britain saying there's another people here which has privilege and preference, and you don't exist as a people. And that necessarily entailed a war. Now, the war didn't really erupt in its full form until much later well after the Balfour Declaration of 1917 and the issuance of the Mandate for Palestine in 1922. In fact, the heaviest, the most brutal part of it was the suppression of the Palestinian revolt of 1936-39 by the British. And so this is a war, I'm arguing, declared by Britain for its own reasons, which had partly to do with Zionism and partly to do with British strategic objectives, and which was waged essentially by the British with support from the Zionist movement and in order to established the Zionist project in Palestine. But essentially, this was not a Jewish-Arab war. This is a British colonial war against an indigenous people that was having something imposed on them by Britain. And I, I, I frame it this way in terms of wars on the Palestinians, because I think that what's going on in Palestine is coded and is framed is largely false. It makes it seem like it's just you know, the Zionist project, and then the Israelis, the state of Israel and the Israelis, and the Palestinians. It's much more complicated than that. In fact, it's an international conflict framed by, started by great powers, and in every case moved forward by great powers. I say the same thing about what I call the second declaration of war, which is the partition resolution. This is an American-Soviet decision to do something with Palestine, just like the Balfour Declaration and the Mandate was a British decision to do something with Palestine. Zionism, the Arabs, they're there. They're obviously part of this. The war in 1947-48 is fought between Zionist militias, later the Jewish, later the Israeli army, the Palestinians, and later the Arab armies. But the framing, the endorsement, the decisions are made in New York, in the UN General Assembly, by the muscle power of the United States and the Soviet Union ramming 
the partition resolution through the General Assembly. So that's the declaration of war. What follows, the fighting, it follows for reasons that I go into, obviously, and the people who are doing the fighting, in the first case, Arabs and Jews. But I'm trying to show this is not just some ancient internecine quarrel between Muslims and Jews or Arabs and Jews or Zionism and the Arab Palestinian nationalism. It has aspects of those things. It is an international conflict directed, endorsed, sanctioned by the great powers. And I go through different, I go through 67, I go through the 1982 war in which Israel invaded Lebanon and besieged Beirut and the PLO was driven out. And I take the story up to the present day. I talk about the um, Oslo Accords as another declaration of war. I talk about the wars on Gaza as another. I could have easily, from 82 onwards, certainly, use different chapter organization. But I think that in every case, what I'm trying to underline is the role of the great powers, in particular the United States, but Britain and France and the Soviet Union as well, at different, at different stages, and also of Arab actors, as well as Israel, and as well as earlier the Zionist movement in this conflict. So there's a couple of things that come to mind. I, I want to focus a little bit on just the, the history of the, of the 20s and the 30s. But it's kind of interesting because what you're doing, in a sense, is um, fighting against the recent historiographical turn. Recent, I guess, is 35 years old uh, now to sort of um, emphasize agency on the local level as opposed to the imperial metropole. So I just right. want to highlight that for people because that that is right now really the the hot move is to not do that, is to de-emphasize right. the agent. Uh, uh, Professor, I'm very much on your side. I mean, I think when we're assigning moral responsibility, we need to really look at the great powers, in particular the Anglos first and then the United States. Just wanted to underline that. But before we do that, could, could we move to the 20s? And could you talk a little bit about the development of Palestinian national consciousness mm-hmm. and place it in the larger um, sort of Arab, uh, right. uh, sort of Arab thinking um, and national consciousness. Just, and just to give you some context, we did a, we're in the middle of actually a, a special series on the Kurds, and we were talking a lot about how Kurdish nationalism developed in this post-Ottomanist context. So maybe could you frame where does Palestinian nationalism come from? Who are the major thinkers we need to know? What makes right. it unique? What makes it similar? For people who might not know uh, how this developed over the course of the 19th and early 20th century. Right. I mean, there are so many problems with the historiography of Palestine, one of them being a misunderstanding of nationalism. Um, Nationalisms create myths about their origins. And in fact, history and archaeology are key tools in fabricating um, these myths. Um, One of the more successful ones has been the creation of of an idea that what has always been seen as a religion or a people, in fact, was always a national entity going back to the time of, you know, David and Solomon and so forth. It's a characteristic move of every nationalism, Turkish nationalism, French nationalism, every single one does the same thing. Uh, Palestinians will talk about Jebusites and Canaanites and equally mythical origins of the modern Palestinian national uh, entity. And in this contest, the Palestinians are at a huge disadvantage because Zionism has the Bible. I mean, every moron in the 21st and 20th and 19th and going back centuries has read the Bible or knows about the Bible, at least in the Western world, if that's true. Uh, Whether you're Christian or not, you know about the Bible. And so attaching modern 20th and 19th century nationalism to such a powerful set of uh, arguments about origin gives Zionism a weight that's very, very hard to argue with, at least in a Judeo-Christian environment. It didn't work for a while with many Jews. It took a while for Zionism to catch hold. But once it did, among many Christians and among many Jews, it became an enormously powerful argument. And it blotted out everything else. Well, this is an ancient people with a connection to this land that goes back to blah, blah, blah. Who are these interloping nomadic nobodies, i.e. the Arabs? The amazing thing is there was no nationalism anywhere in the Middle East in 1800. The great, great, great grandparents of every single Israeli did not think of themselves as Israeli, did not think that they had to live in a Jewish nation state, did not believe in nation states. There were no nation states in the Middle East anyway, nor did the ancestors of anybody today think of themselves that way 220 years ago. So it's an entirely modern phenomenon. However, uh, people thought of themselves in terms of peoplehood, the idea that that should be defined by a state did not exist. And it was beginning to develop in Europe a little earlier. But even in Europe, um, the Brits put a Dutchman and then later a German on the throne for religious reasons. They're not English. They're not British. King George I never learned to speak proper English, for heaven's sakes. William was a Dutchman. William and Mary, 
1688. So the idea of nationality and the nation state as the be all and end all going back into time immemorial is a, is a modern myth. And that's true for the Palestinians, as it is, of course, for Israel. Where did Palestinian nationalism come from? It came as part of this rise of nationalisms in the region. You've done a, a piece on Kurdish nationalism. Kurdish nationalism was a little later than Turkish, a little later than Arab, a little later than Iranian nationalism, but it came within a generation of these other national revivals. That's how they're seen, revivals. They're always seen as, you know, uh, it was always there and it's been revived. So you have the Haskalah in, in Hebrew, you have this, this revival of modern Hebrew, uh, and you have a Nahda in Arabic the renaissance of Arabic. And, and that's not just a light linguistic process, that is a national process, or it comes to be taken over as part of a national process. And so the revival of Arabic in the 19th century, printing of, of classics and so on and so forth, is a preliminary to the rise of Arab nationalism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And Palestinian identity develops against that background. I have a whole book on that topic entitled Palestinian Identity. Buy it, everyone. <laughs> in which I published by Columbia, in which I go in great detail into exactly how this sense of identity emerged. Um, the most obvious signs of it are in the early 20th century when you have a, a, a vibrant local press and you can see newspapers like Palestine, which means Palestine, or Al-Karmel, which means Mount Carmel, um, near Haifa, um, as signs of local nationalism emerging. Um, around the turn of the 20th and beginning in the, in, in the second decade of the, of the 20th century. Um, and you have people who are, especially newspaper editors, educators, Khalil Sakakini, Isa Isa. I mean, the names are probably unfamiliar to your listeners, but these are major intellectual figures, major essayists, writers, journalists, educators, and so forth, who play the same kind of role that intellectuals play in every, every national movement. And they continue to be very, very important going into the 20s and the 30s. Eventually, mass politics and the, the spread of these ideas uh, among the population uh, is unstoppable. It's a national era after World War I. Um, you have Woodrow Wilson talking about self-determination. You have Lenin and the Bolsheviks talking about self-determination. Uh, you have the breakdown of multinational empires, the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and they all break into national parts, all of them. So this is happening everywhere, in Europe, in the Middle East, in Central Asia, and so forth. And the Palestinians are part of that wide process of growing national consciousness, as is the Zionist movement, as it gradually becomes more and more powerful among Jewish communities. It's a minority before World War I in every single Jewish community, but it's a growing minority. And, and the Holocaust and the Nazism and then the Holocaust, of course, pushes it over the edge. It, it, it gives Zionism a, a power as an argument that it had actually not had before the 30s. It was a strong argument before then because of the persecution that was that was occurring in Eastern Europe, in, in, in the Russian Empire, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and elsewhere uh, in Europe, in Christian Europe in particular. And it is essentially an Eastern European nationalist ideology that emerges out of that context, like many others, like Czech and Polish and, and, and other, other national movements in Eastern, in Eastern Europe. And, and what's happening in the Middle East at almost the same time is perfectly analogous. Let's talk a little bit about the colonial dynamic that existed in this period in the 20s and 30s, uh, mm -hmm. which you write about in the book, uh, something that sets, I think, mandatory Palestine apart from other colonial projects. You have this construct where British officials uh, are able to say with a straight face, we're not colonizing this place. It's the Zionists who are colonizing this place. And yet, uh, when there's any Palestinian resistance to what's happening, it's not the Zionist movement that's that they're running up against. When they revolt in the second half of the 1930s, it's not the Zionists so much. It's the British authorities that they're revolting against mm -hmm. that, that provide the the you know the resistance to those uprisings. And yet, you know, and that that leads into you know I want to talk a little bit about the the white paper in 1939, which is the moment where Zionism kind of it, you know, in a black becomes white, sit <laughs> like dogs living with cats, mass hysteria, is able to claim the mantle of anti-colonialism. But but let's talk first about the the dynamic that that existed uh, between these three parties, really, but two sort of working together mm -hmm. uh, in the twenties and thirties. Mm -hmm. Well, the British, I, I stressed this in the in the first part of the interview we did previously. The British were doing this for their own reasons. You know, it wasn't because of the brown eyes of 
Eastern European Jews that they were doing this. The, the, the foreign secretary who issued the Balfour Declaration had been as prime minister previously, the author of the Alien Exclusion Acts, which is the most anti-Semitic bill in modern British history. So we are not talking about philo-Semitism or love of the Jews. We're talking about cold, naked calculation of imperial strategic interest in driving what Britain is doing. And it, we're talking about an era in which even though self-determination is being talked about by President Wilson, by Lenin, uh, mouthed without conviction by the British and the French in the Versailles Peace Conference in, in, in Paris, colonialism is still in good odor. Britain has settler colonies that are becoming dominions in Canada, in Australia, and so forth, or South Africa. And Zionism is part of that European movement to settle European populations, in, in the case of Zionism, with a national objective, unlike other settler colonial projects, which are extensions of the mother country. But colonialism is in good odor. It's a good thing. You're doing a favor to these indigenous peoples by settling and taking their land. You're, you're civilizing them, whatever, whatever the rhetoric was. And the British saw bringing European Jewish Zionists to Palestine as a good thing for the Palestinians. They were backward, feckless, whatever. And all of that racist rhetoric is there. If you read what the British are saying to each other, if you read how the British regarded native populations everywhere, always, it was this condescending sense of superiority of Europeans generally and, and Brits in particular over everybody else, and in, in, in notably uh, uh, Arabs and, and Indians and Africans and so forth. And so Britain is doing this in its own self-interest, in furtherance of the Zionist project, which is seen as allied to Britain and helpful to Britain, and as part of a process whereby parts of the globe are simply taken over by white Europeans. And the Palestinians do what indigenous peoples do everywhere always. They resist. First, their resistance is polite and, and mainly polite and mainly political and mainly diplomatic. And eventually there are outbursts of violence. And then finally, there's this major revolt in 1936. And that continues for three years. A guardian of law and order looks out over the old walled city of Jerusalem as once again the irresistible force of Zionism meets the immovable object of Arab nationalism among the bloodstained hills of the Holy Land. It's one of the major interwar revolts of colonized peoples. The Irish are the only ones who win one of these wars, by the way, in 1919, 2021. The only people under European colonial rule who managed to liberate themselves between World War I and World War II were the Irish. Everybody else revolted. The Moroccans revolted. The Egyptians revolted. The Iraqis revolted. I could go down the list. The Indians revolted and so forth. Nobody succeeded except the Irish. Is so this the, the so-called Wilsonian... Would you call, would you the so-called Wilsonian moment? Would you relate this to that sort of this idea of self-determination, or is that an inaccurate way to understand it? I just I'm curious as a historian. Yeah, well, there's a Harvard historian who's written a book called The Wilsonian Moment. Mello. Um, I think he misses the fact that it's a Wilsonian Leninian moment, or it's a Le Wilson Lenin. I mean, so you know, got it. Lenin McCartney, uh, uh, <laughs> Lenin. Uh, uh, Wilson, in my view, and in the view, I think, of any objective historian, both of these powers were seen, and the new Bolshevik regime and President Wilson in the United States were seen as anti-colonial. They were incorrect, people who saw them that way. Obviously, the United States was a colonial power in the Philippines and the Caribbean. Um, Russia had been a colonial power, and the Soviet Union became, in a certain sense, a, a modern version of the Russian Empire. So that was a mistake in looking at things in 1917, 1918 by colonized people, but that's how they saw them. And yes, there's no question, but the Palestinian resistance was strongly reinforced by an argument that the Covenant of the League of Nations explicitly said that they should be independent. At least that was their reading of Article 22 of the Covenant of the League of Nations. The mandate for Palestine contradicted that. It said there's one people in Palestine, it's the Jewish people, they're the only ones who have national or have uh, national rights, national home for the Jewish people. And nobody else exists as a people. The others are non-Jewish communities that have civil and religious rights, not political rights. They don't get to vote, they don't get to choose, and they don't have a right of self-determination. They don't have national rights, which the Jews do, according to the Balfour Declaration and the Mandate. Could I ask just a very brief question? Someone is defining a Jew. How are they defining a Jew? Are they using halakha? Are they saying no. that? So who who is a Jew, if you don't mind my well, asking? Th this takes us to the Whoopi Goldberg controversy. <laughs> right. Racial racial ideology of that era defined the Jews as a race. Okay. okay. I mean, we today have deconstructed the myth of, of race 
and, and, and there's a different view in 2022 of what race is. But in 1922 or in 1902, there were seen to be races, the Aryan race, Semitic races, and Jews were seen as a race uh, by racial theorists who, whether they were British or they were Russian or they were German or they were Jewish, saw these things in terms of race. Now, many Jews may have defined themselves as either a people or as a religious group. But in terms of European racial theory, they were seen as a race. But what the Balfour Declaration did was to describe them as a people in national terms. So when you say a Jewish national home, you're saying they're a nation. They're therefore entitled to self-determination. And that was the, the, the increasing rhetoric of the post-World War I era. And the Palestinians also come to see themselves as a nation. Uh, I don't think anybody in 1800 saw Palestine as a nation or the Palestinians as a nation any more than anybody in 1800 saw the Jews as a nation requiring, you know, a state and all of that. That didn't exist in people's minds a uh, hundred years before the Balfour Declaration. But by the post-World War I era, it did exist in people's minds. And so that's that's what framed what the Palestinians were. The Palestinians, of course, were being denied by the British and the, and, the, and, the, and the Zionist project any national existence. It was only dissident Zionist leaders like Zeb Jabotinsky, who had what was called revisionist Zionism, which is in fact the ideological forerunner of most Israeli prime ministers since 1977. Yes, it's um, Begin, right? It's Begin, Begin, yeah. yeah. Uh, Yitzhak Shamir, uh, Ariel Sharon, Benjamin Netanyahu, Echud Omert, uh, Zippy Livni. I mean, most of the politicians who've dominated Israel in the last uh, 50 years uh, are from that trend of Zionism. Uh, at the time, it was a minority trend. But Jabotinsky was the only one who said, of course, the Arab Palestinians are a people, and of course, they're resisting. And of course, we're colonizing. We have rights here. It's ours. We're going to take it. But they will fight us. And we need an iron wall, i.e. the British, to protect us. So the only one who spoke, in my view, honestly, uh, and wasn't either engaged in self-deception or pulling the wool over his British audience, uh, was Jabotinsky and his followers. And they, they described it correct, the, the conflict, I think, correctly as one between a colonial settler movement, which had rights, claimed it had rights, of course, um, and between an indigenous population, which ne necessarily and naturally, in his view, would resist this process, as he said, as did every other indigenous people. Could you maybe just give very quickly, what are the literal numbers of population at this time so people get a sense yeah. of what was uh, going yeah. on and the dynamics there? Sure. Um, at the time the Balfour Declaration is issued in, in, uh, in 1917, at the height of World War I, during a famine, and with population actually decreasing in Palestine, the high death rate and so on, uh, about seven or five or eight percent of the population is Jewish. The overwhelming majority, over 90 percent of the population are Arab. They're either Muslim or Christian. Uh, maybe 10 or 15 percent of the Arab population are Christian, the rest are Muslims. That proportion changes over time with unrestricted immigration established by the British mandate. The British are mandated by the League of Nations to encourage immigration and close settlement of Jewish immigrants on the land, which means finding land to put them on and helping them to arrive and giving them full citizenship the moment they get there. And in fact, giving them all kinds of privileges, economic and other, which the British facilitate. So that proportion grows to about 18% of the population. The Jewish proportion of the total population grows to 17 or 18% by the end of the 20s. And then it stagnates. It does not increase very much. In fact, it begins to decrease in the early 30s. That's partly because of the worldwide depression. It's, there are a variety of reasons for it. The Zionist project doesn't seem to be succeeding. Um, there's Palestinian resistance, 1929. There's a serious outburst of resistance. Many people are killed. There are massacres in Hebron and in other places. And it's really the rise to power of Hitler in 1933, which changes the demographic balance in Palestine. Because at the outset, the Nazis were trying to get rid of the Jews in any way possible. And that included getting them out of Germany, letting them leave. Um, and in fact, the German government comes to an agreement with the Jewish agency on what is called a transfer agreement, where, whereby people can bring some of their assets with them. The Nazis loot as much as they can, of course, being Nazis. But people are allowed to bring some of their capital and some of their goods. And that leads to an, that and persecution increasing of Jews, increasing all over Eastern and Central Europe in the 30s as part of the rise of fascism everywhere in the region leads to an increase in the Jewish proportion of the population to 30%, from 17 or 18 around 1930, 31, to I think 31% by 1939. And this is a revolution, a demographic revolution. Uh, immigration at that rate, Ben-Gurion I think writes in his diary, immigration at that rate means a Jewish state 
very soon. Meaning we have a majority and we can now say we're a majority. We want to have statehood. It's not just a Jewish national home. So uh, a couple of questions. One, what is the ideological constitution of a lot of these Jews coming? Are they labor Zionists? Are they revisionist Zionists? And then related to that, how many uh, of the indigenous Arab population has a sense of identity with Palestinian national consciousness at this point? Uh, Certainly up till the rise of the Nazis, you had some people who are fleeing Europe, fleeing persecution, Um, especially after the United States closes the gates of immigration in 1924. So racist British laws in 1905, and racist American laws in 1924 are an important part of why Zionism has an appeal. Because if you want to leave Eastern Europe or any other part of Europe where you feel you're in danger of persecution or being persecuted, you could go to the United States before 1924. You could go to some of the British dominions. And many people did. Many people went to South Africa or Australia or Canada, as well as the United States or Latin America or elsewhere. But many of those avenues are closed off in the 20s or before. So you do have some people fleeing persecution. But by and large, many certainly of the Jewish immigrants to Palestine were were motivated by ideology. They believed in Zionism. They thought that, yes, the only place the Jews could be safe was in a Jewish state, which they had to help create. That probably changes with the rise of Hitler because you have people who really are desperate. Right, they just want to get and out. And whether yeah. they're Zionists or they're not Zionists, they feel they've got to go. And this is almost the only place many of them can go. So I think that that proportion changes. Also, you have motivated labor Zionists, starting with the second Aliyah in the early part of the 20th century and continuing right up to the to, through the 30s. I think after that, you just have many more middle-class people fleeing Germany who don't necessarily... Uh, have either a Zionist or, for that matter, or a socialist ethos. So I think the the composition of the population changes, but the rise of Hitler changes the world situation, obviously. Uh, And it's in particular changes the situation for Jews, either in Germany or in other countries that are gradually absorbed into Germany, parts of Czechoslovakia, Sudetenland, Austria. And then once World War II begins, Poland and various other, almost every part of continental Europe, is part of that empire. And everybody is in danger. Every, everybody who's Jewish or communist or gay or whatever it may be, or a gypsy, is in danger in that Nazi period. So just a very quick question, because this is something like uh, I learned growing up. Um, what is the relationship between Hitler and the Grand Mufti? Because this is something that you often hear in, in sort of <laughs> around yes. uh, sort of around these spaces. So I don't right. actually know the real relationship. So what is that? Right. Well, the Mufti, I mean, one of the interesting things about the Mufti is he is a faithful henchman of the British right up until 1937. He's hated by the Zionists. As far as the Zionists are concerned, the Palestinians don't have a legitimate national movement, and they shouldn't have one. And their leaders are venal, and their leaders are fooling their people, and the Palestinians should just shut up and lie down until they're a minority, and then just, they shouldn't have a voice. And he was the leader, but he was the British appointed leader. It's the first first British high commissioner, Sir Herbert Samuel, who is a committed, dedicated Zionist, who appoints him because he promises to keep the Arabs in line. And by and large, from the moment of his appointment, I believe in 1921 by surprise, as are the British, as are the Zionists, by the outbreak of 1936. However, something changes in 37. 1937, the British arrest the entire Palestinian leadership, and they ship them off into exile or put them in prison camps. And the Mufti escapes. First, he escapes to uh, Lebanon, where the French protect him as a means of getting back at the British who protected Syrian rebels in the 1920s. Okay, you protected rebels against our mandate. Hell with you. We're going to protect rebels against your mandate. When World War II arrives, he flees to Iraq. When the British reoccupy Iraq in 1941, he flees to Tehran. He tries to go to Turkey. He can't do it. Finally, the only place he can go is Italy, and he ends up in Germany, at which point he allies himself with the Nazis. 
I, I've looked at uh, diplomatic correspondence, and there's a lot of material on this from the late 30s, showing he was still trying to re-ingratiate himself with the British as late as 1939. And the British play a really nasty game in 39. They have exiled the entire Palestinian leadership. Only a few, like the Mufti, have escaped. The rest are like my uncle in exile in the seashells, or in exile in Kenya, or wherever they send them to, or in Sarafan, the big prison camp. One of my uncles is in Sarafan, one of my uncles is in the seashells, everybody else, you know, of the leadership. Uh, the ones who escape being, being liquidated on the spot, I mean, local armed leaders are caught by the British, they just shot on the spot. A hundred something people are, are executed after trial, but hundreds of rebels are just, just murdered. Uh, and is the exile just to make it more stable? Is that the idea? You exile the Palestinian elite, and it's just going to make the whole thing more stable? Is that the oh, yeah, that's strategic rationale? Thought. Actually, yeah, yeah. the exile of that leadership led to the outbreak of the of the most violent phase of the armed revolution. Uh, it had exactly the opposite result to what they made. But they thought I, they would. Yeah, well, that, this I is mean, the rationale. You know, yeah. The British do this. They, they exiled Arabi Pasha in 1882. They exiled Adeni leaders. They exiled... Uh, the elected leader of Basra when they were trying to get Faisal elected king of Iraq. The, the British do this. I mean, the seashells, uh, my uncle's memoir talks about the people he met there. There were all these other exiles from other British colonies. Right. Right. <laughs> it was, you know, that's what the British did. Uh, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, then Ceylon, uh, is another favorite. You know, they love islands. St. Helena, uh, Elba, right. Right. Malta. The Egyptian leadership in 1919 is exiled to Malta. You know, the Brits are an island people, and they, they think that's the best place to imprison their enemies on another island. Anyway, um, so he does become an ally of the Nazis. There's no question. But sort of faute de mieux. I mean, he, he wanted to be in Turkey. The Turks wouldn't take him. He wanted to stay in Iran. The Soviets and the British invade Iran uh, in 1941. So he's driven out of Lebanon. He's driven out of Iraq. He's driven out of Iran. He can't stay in Turkey. He, he passes through Turkey, and he ends up in Germany. And there he plays a terrible role. I mean, he allies himself with the Nazis. The, the point that should be made, there are two points that should, make, should be made. First of all, in 1939, when the British organized the St. James Palace Conference to dispose of Palestine in a different way, after which they issue the white paper in which they betray the Zionist movement and pivot towards the Arabs. They invite every Palestinian leader, including all the people that they have had in exile, my uncle, uh, Jamal Husseini, the Mufti's cousin, every other major leader not the Mufti. And he's dying to go because then he would return as the leader of the Palestinians and he'd be negotiating with the British, which of course is what he wanted and what he had been doing for 20 years, up, well, 18 years, right up or 17 years, right up to 1937. The British decide that they can't take it. They distrust him so much or they dislike him so much. And the Zionists are virulently opposed to him. This is before he goes to the Germans, mind you. He's in Beirut at the time. He's not yet gone over to the Nazis. Uh, he hasn't even gone to Iraq yet. So that's the first thing that the British do. The second thing that I think is important uh, to understand is that most of the other Palestinian and Arab leaders align themselves with the Allied powers during World War II. That is to say, they support the British war effort. They encourage Palestinians to recruit in the British army. Uh, there's big, big deal is made of the Jewish Legion and the Jewish Brigade that is recruited from Palestinian Jews who sign up to fight with the Allies. There are thousands of Palestinians who sign up to fight with the Allies as well. Completely unknown story is that hundreds of thousands of Arabs fought on the Allied side. The bulk of the French army in 1943-44 was made up of Algerians, Moroccans, and Senegalese who fought for France. Then there are many, many Arabs who fought, the Jordanian soldiers, Iraqi soldiers, Egyptian soldiers, and Palestinians. And, you know, the Muftis, evil the evil that's attributed to him, not entirely, in my view, unjustly, is a terrible, terrible decision that he made. But he, he must have, he seems to have felt he had no alternative. He couldn't stay in any of the places. The British were chasing him, in other words, from place to place. It should be set against the fact that the rest of the Palestinian leadership did not do the same thing. They did not join. They did not support the Axis. And I think it, I think it, it's, it, it at least is something that should be kept in mind. When we when we weigh the, the, the what, what the Mufti himself and a few very few of his collaborators did. Thank you, Professor. I'd like to talk a little more about the white paper moment. This comes 
as you said, in 1939, kind of at the end of the the Palestinian revolt and mm-hmm. the dawning realization that maybe we need to have some support within the Arab world if we exactly. fight a war against Germany. So we need to pivot. We need to get away from fully supporting Zionism and and address, you know, literally addressing, you know, 20 years after the fact. The idea that there was a people already living in Palestine when Balfour right. issued his declaration and saying, well, you know, we couldn't possibly have meant to disenfranchise these people, right? You know, sort of this this belated acknowledgement. The decision by some Palestinians, including, I mean, Al-Husseini, the, the Mufti, to reject the white paper has been cast. I've seen it cast as sort of this uh, great mistake on the part of the Palestinians. Right. Um, I, I've you know, there's, that myself. There's I, Hillel I, I, I that myself. Well, so this is what, what I, I mean. Hillel Cohen is, you know, has the book, has his book, Army of Shadows, where he says Hussein he rejected it simply sure. because it, it wouldn't have left him uh, in control of the the new Palestinian state. I, I, I was curious for your take on this moment. Is this a, a, a moment where the Palestinians could have brokered a better arrangement for themselves? Did they miss an opportunity? Should the British have been believed, or you know, the the sort of the white paper intention yeah. uh, have been believed? You know, it's a really good question. It's one of those might have been of history. I, I talk about this in a couple of things that I've written. Uh, I do think it was a mistake, and I've read the I've read the arguments of the majority of the Palestinian leadership that was in favor of accepting. And I think they probably would have benefited themselves and the Palestinian people had they accepted. Let me say two words about what the British were doing because I think you laid it out pretty pretty accurately. The British realized World War II was on the doorstep, and that they were going to fight the Germans and the Italians, among other places, in the Mediterranean. And that meant they had to stop alienating the Arabs. And they had to stop doing things in Palestine in particular that were well broadcast all over the Arab world by Italian propaganda, radio body, and Nazi propaganda, and by people knowing that what the British were doing. I mean, it's not like they needed the Italians to tell them that they, they were blowing up people's homes and, and shooting captured rebels. People knew this all over the Arab world. There was an Arab nationalist press in Egypt and in Iraq and in Syria and in Lebanon that was publishing this stuff. You didn't need, you know, AP and, and Agence France Press and Reuters to tell you. You knew, or Radio Body or whatever. And the British were making a cold, calculating, strategic decision like they did in 1917. You know, we need the Arabs. The Jews are going to fight with us anyway. They're not going to align with the Nazis, for God's sakes. We have, they have no choice. So, And we're going to fight on these people's terrain. Italy was in Libya, adjacent to Egypt. The most important connection between Britain, the Mediterranean, and India is the Suez Canal in Egypt. There were all kinds of reasons, strategic reasons, for the British abandonment of Zionism. And they did that with the White Paper. They brought the, the, the St. James Palace Conference together with all these Arab leaders and all these Zionist leaders and all these Palestinian leaders, whom they brought back from exile and then sent back into exile after the conference was over. So my uncle's brought in from the seashells. He gets a new suit because he's lost 20 kilos. And he goes to the conference, and then they ship him off into exile after the conference is over. But they never invite the Mufti. And they don't pay much attention to what the Jews and the Arabs are saying. They've decided, which is to pivot away from their commitments under the Balfour Declaration and the mandate. So they limit Jewish immigration. They limit land purchase. And they say this country will be independent in 10 years. Well, if you limit immigration, natural growth of the population means that you're going to have an Arab majority in 10 years. Now, they include a provision, which is as long as everybody accepts, which means that there's a veto for the Jewish agency and for the Zionists. And that's like the the poison pill. The Palestinians may have thought that they would get self-determination and independence, but that's dependent. It's like making something in Northern Ireland dependent on the Unionist Protestants agreeing. Well, if they don't agree, then it doesn't happen. So you haven't really promised anything. The other really important point that I think has to be kept in mind when you talk about these might-have-beens of history is that at the very moment that the British make this change, this pivot, Britain is about to cease to become the most decisive power in the Middle East. Two years later, the Nazis invade the Soviet Union. And two years later, the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor and and Germany declares war on the United States. At that moment, Britain becomes a second-rate power. At that instant, two years afterwards, Ben-Gurion and Ibn Saud are the only two Middle Eastern leaders at that stage in the late 30s who understood that those were the coming powers. And our, Ibn Saud does, cuts a deal with the Americans rather than the British in 1933. He meets President Roosevelt on the deck of a warship. 
1945, and Ben-Gurion, who had spent several years in the United States during World War I, together with Yitzhak Ben-Zvi, laying the groundwork for the Zionist movement in America, and his aides, uh, Moshe Shertok, Moshe Sharet, and Golda Meir, are already working on the Americans and the Soviets. So it's not as important as it seems the white paper. Britain doesn't decide anymore. The United States and the Soviets decide. And we find that out brutally right after World War II, when the Americans basically forced the British to accept a huge number of Jewish immigrants. The British say, we want to stay with the, the white paper, which limits immigration. The Americans say, you've got to let these poor displaced persons who've survived the Holocaust into Palestine. And it's the Americans who prevail. And it's the Americans who prevail in the General Assembly with their Soviet allies. The British abstain on the partition resolution of 1947. It's an American-Soviet resolution that's jammed through with bribery, with arm twisting, you know, with block voting. They get Latin American countries, the Soviets get their satellites, and, and you know, it's a slam dunk. Um, but it is a, a American-Soviet slam dunk. So the white paper ends up not being quite as important as it might have been had Britain remained the dominant world power that it was in 1939. So why don't we end on this question about World War II? So what is the experience of the Palestinian resistance struggle in World War II? How is Zionism, um, obviously it's very much shaped by right. World War II and the Holocaust after, but what is what is happening, let's say, between 39 and 45 uh, right. in, in, in the land itself? A lot has been made of the sort of dichotomy of the, the Zionists kind of helping Britain outside of Palestine, resisting Britain inside Palestine. Uh, the King David bombing in 1946, of course, you know, is, is part of this uh, kind of push and pull. But I'm, I'm curious as to what the dynamic was among the Palestinians, uh, right. you know, as opposed to, to the Zionists. Right. Well, Ben-Gurion realizes, I mean, the Zionists are furious at the White Paper, but Ben-Gurion has realized by 1939 that he has the essential demographic and economic and military basis to win. He's optimistic in spite of the white paper. I mean, they're outraged at the white paper. There's no question. The revisionists start to attack the British almost immediately. In 1944, they, they kill the senior British official in Egypt, the revisionists, not, not Ben-Gurion's people, not the, the majority of labor Zionists. But he knows that they're going to win at this point. I mean, if we read his diary, you can see in his diary, he, he, the immigration, the Jewish-controlled sector of the economy is larger than the Arab-controlled sector of the economy by the mid-30s. And the British have armed and trained thousands and thousands of Jewish settlement police and night squads to fight the Palestinians as auxiliaries. The British are desperate to put this revolt down. They bring 100,000 troops in to put down the 36-39 revolt. One out of every 10 Palestinian Arab adult males is killed, wounded, imprisoned, or exiled by the British in putting down this revolt. So the Palestinians are flattened. Their leadership has been liquidated or exiled. The most vigorous... Uh, uh, resistance fighters have been killed or, or wounded or exiled or imprisoned. The Zionist movement, meanwhile, is moving from strength to strength. And then you have this horrific revelation of the horrors of the Holocaust, which incredibly strengthens Zionism as an argument. And it drives people into the ranks of, of the Zionist movement. People are, are, they say, well, they're right. You know, if I, we resisted this argument before, it's harder to resist it when the horrors of the death camps are finally revealed. And people began to know about this stuff as, as early as the decisions are taken in 1942. I mean, they're murdering people all over Eastern Europe even before that. So one side, one group, the Zionists and the Yeshuvah, the Jewish community in Palestine, are getting stronger and stronger. They're moving from strength to strength. And the Palestinians have been gravely weakened, and they never really recover uh, from the defeat of 3639. The leadership is scattered, and, and some of these guys never return. The Mufti never returns. He's never allowed to return to Palestine. Many other leaders stay out. Others who come back, you know, they're, they're, they're a shadow of their former self. I look at pictures of my uncle before he's exiled and after he's exiled. I mean, he was not the same man. He'd been away from Palestine for six, I think, five or six years between the seashells and, and Beirut. So uh, the Palestinians... Uh, and and actually, everybody in Palestine benefits economically during World War II because it, uh, Egypt and Palestine are a base for the British and American armies fighting across North Africa and then into Sicily and then into Italy and later on into Provence in 1944. So huge amounts of money are spent. The economies on both sides, the Jewish and the Arab economy, benefit uh, during World War II. But the Zionists are able to secure external support such that they no longer need the British. And that's what enables these attacks on the British 
in 46, 47, that finally forced Britain to abandon Palestine. They don't just abandon it for that reason. They abandon it because they're leaving India. And the whole point of controlling the route to India is India. If you don't have India, then what's the point of the route to India? So Egypt takes on less in strategic importance and Palestine takes on less in strategic importance for the British. So I think we're at a point, I don't, I don't want to broach the, the partition or um, you know the UN process because that'll take us in a whole other direction. And I think we're at a point where we should kind of leave off for now. But why don't you uh, give everybody sort of an overview of the state of the political landscape in Palestine kind of on the eve of the partition. I know there's some back and forth between Palestinian leaders, including, you know, your uncle, I think you, you mentioned in the book, and the Jordanian government, and, you know, just kind of give people a lay of the land sort of as we, right. as we sit on the cusp of this uh, right. major event. Well, as I've said, the Palestinians are weak and, and, and still divided. Um, you know, a, ba- a major sector of Palestinian opinion had been opposed to the national revolt of 36-39. A major leader who had been a mayor of Jerusalem, Neshashibi, was opposed. And he was allied with the Hashemites in Jordan, he and this faction. The British created Jordan. The British armed and financed Jordan. British officers commanded and officered the Jordanian army. And so as far as Britain was concerned, Jordan was a reliable client, state, ally, puppet, pawn, whatever you want to call it, in the 30s and into the 40s. And in fact, in the 1937 partition plan, which was a British response to the Arab general strike in the beginning of the revolt, much of Palestine was to be given over to the Jordanians. Part was to be created as a Jewish state, and part was to remain under direct British control. The largest part of Palestine was to be given to Jordan, which was seen as, you know, it's like giving it to ourselves as far as the British were concerned. We would control directly this chunk. We would indirectly control through King Abdullah, another large, the largest chunk. And then there would be a Jewish state, which would be allied to Britain. So, you know, all would be for the best and the best of all possible worlds. And Abdullah was still in cahoots with the British and trying to cut a deal with the Zionists. And this is one of the things that my father told me before he died, which was that he happened to have been in Amman to carry a message to King Abdullah that the Palestinian leadership declined King Abdullah, then Amir Abdullah's offer of protection. In other words, what he was saying is, come under my umbrella and I'll deal with the Zionists for you, because I've got good relations with them. And I'm a British client. So trust me. Well, the Palestinians hadn't been fighting in order to get out from under the British boot heel to go under the boot heel of King Abdullah, who was just seen as a British, you know, stooge by most Palestinians. Um, And they didn't trust Abdullah being able to leverage his relations with the Zionist movement because, in fact, he was the weaker partner in that relationship. So they declined. And my father described his meeting with Abdullah to me just before he died and said, remember this. This is this is what happened. This is exactly how it happened. Um, The story is in much greater detail in the book. So the Palestinians are weak, divided, and the Zionist movement is building up strength and is ready to take advantage as soon as the partition resolution is passed on November 29th, 1947. And fighting breaks out in various parts of Palestine between Arabs and Jews, between the relatively disorganized military forces of the Palestinians who have no central command, no real basis of provision in arms or in money, and the well-organized centralized militias of the issue of, of the Jewish community in Palestine, which had been built up by the British to help put down the Palestinian revolt, and then had been reinforced by the British organizing a Jewish brigade in World War I. And so that you had a huge reservoir of leaders, military leaders, commanders, who had either served in World War II or had served under British command in putting down the revolt. So Yigal Alon, later chief of staff, later a minister of this, that, and the other. Moshe Dayan, later chief of staff, later minister of defense, many other senior Israeli commanders who became extremely important in the Israeli army from the late 40s until the 70s and 80s as politicians, were trained by the British in the 30s and fought with the British. Moshe Dayan loses his eye fighting with British forces, driving the Vichy French out of uh, Lebanon in 1941, I think. And there's no analogous situation with the Palestinian exactly. population. They They're don't not form trained. A, they don't yeah, form yeah, yeah. an Arab brigade. Right. And so that's a big difference in tactical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. On the contrary, the Palestinians were the victims of British repression. Got it. Whereas the Zionist project was the beneficiary of training and armament. They trained and armed thousands of people 
to fight with them. They needed every soldier they could get. The British couldn't put down the revolt in 1937-38 until the Munich crisis ended because they didn't have disposable reserves. As soon as the Munich crisis is resolved, as soon as Chamberlain capitulates to Hitler <laughs> over the time, Sudetenland, yeah. the British free two divisions and send them to Palestine. And that's what tips the balance. In that situation, they're recruiting everybody they can from the Palmach and the Haganah and the Jewish settlement police, military forces. And these are these become well, relatively well-trained. I mean, obviously, uh, they're not on the level of the Arab Legion, which enters Palestine on May 15, 1948, which is a regular army. They're not yet a regular army. But they have the kind of training and centralized organization and funding and arms that the Palestinians simply don't have. So in the months before the British withdrawal is complete on May 15th, and before the Jewish state that's laid down in the partition resolution declares its independence and Israel is established, the Palestinians are being defeated in March, in April, and in May. And city after city is lost. Jaffa is overrun. Haifa is overrun. The Arab parts of those cities. Uh, Bisan is overrun. Tiberias is overrun. The villages on the road to Jerusalem are overrun. These are many areas were supposed to be part of the Jewish state, but many of them were supposed to be part of the Arab state under partition. So you have a situation by the time May 15th comes around where several hundred thousand Palestinians have been driven from their homes or fled in terror. Uh, and vast areas of the country have been basically rendered Arab-free by military action. Conquest, in the case of Jaffa. 60,000 people flee Jaffa. 60,000 people flee Haifa. 30,000 people flee the Western Arab districts of Jerusalem. That's 150,000. And then there are another 150,000 in other parts of the country. Before May 15th, before a single Arab soldier enters Palestine, almost half of the people who become refugees in, the, in this war have already been driven from their homes. And the two biggest, two of the three biggest Arab cities have been fully conquered. And the Arab part of West Jerusalem has been conquered. So I think in explaining what happens during the 1948 war, first you have to understand that the 1948 war starts in 1947. And it goes on right up to May 15th as an inter-Arab Jewish Zionist Palestinian war inside Palestine. And then it becomes an Arab state versus Israel war once Israel is established and once the Arab armies enter. And their entry has to be understood in terms of 300,000 people suddenly fleeing to Damascus or to Amman or to Saida or Beirut or whatever. And the Arab states, which had no intention of intervening earlier on, suddenly saying, if we don't do this, what's going to stop these guys? They can take the whole country. The Palestinians aren't going to be able to resist them. So let's end there because um, I, I really hope you will come back for another episode and we could start like with the World War II period uh, and show people what's going on. Um, but thank you so much, Professor. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you again. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.